pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to open the word this morning, and we pray that as we do so, uh, we would learn from your truth and have a, a, a well uh, in-depth understanding on the, uh, as we continue our study in the issue of authority, good and bad. Thank you, Father, for this time, and pray that it would exhort and bless our people in Jesus' name. Amen. If, if you're here with us for the f- uh, first time visiting or, or whatnot, we are, every uh, November, we do what's called a Family Focus Month. Family Focus Month could either be the family, like the nuclear family, or it could be the, the church family, and we deal with issues that relate to that. So uh, in this case, in this month, we're, we're dealing with both the nuclear family and uh, the church family together, and uh, Nam opened us up with the issue of uh, authority, both good and bad. We're going to talk about the good authority, what, what has been uh, instituted for us uh, in the scripture, not just for, you know, church and home, but all of society, uh, and uh, um, the establishment of that. And then there are abuses of that, which we're going to talk about today. Pastor Dave talked about uh, authority as it relates to the issue of the home, uh, in terms of parenting and, and the specific uh, relationship between the parents and the children, and um, today we're gonna we're gonna move on in that in the next two. And uh, so, if you came here looking for a real positive message, and you see, oh man, we're talking about abuse of authority in the church is kind of a downer. Well, you know, uh, hopefully we could we could learn from even things that are that are of a negative topic, but. Uh, authority. Let me just start by saying authority is is a good thing because it has been ordained by God Himself. Now you know we live in an age that is very anti-authority, and we all need to recognize that that is not a good thing. Anti-authority is not a good thing. It's not a good attitude uh, to have. It's certainly not something that God would have for us. It's against God's order for the church as we'll talk about today, not to mention, though, all of society as well. You know, there are governing authorities that we are to be submissive to. I know that doesn't sound happy to a lot of you in here, but that's the biblical truth. And there are people in our own homes to whom we are to be submissive to, meaning kids to parents, wives uh, to husbands. And these are given by God for our protection and our care. And the same is true for the elders as well, which we will focus on in this morning's uh, message. For example, we can think of a few pertinent uh, passages that refer to the relationship of submission and obedience to the elders of, uh, of the church. And we'll look at that in just a second. But let me just tell you where we're going here this morning. One, we're going to look at the biblical basis uh, for elder authority. And then secondly, we're going to jump off from there and talk about right and wrong exercise of elder authority. But with that said, let's talk about the biblical basis for elder authority by just looking at a couple of passages that, you know, we, we can glean through the New Testament. Acts 20 verse 28 says, Pay careful attention. This is uh, Paul writing to the Ephesian elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseers is actually one of the terms for elders, talking about their function, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Overseers are to care for the church of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 
verses 12 to 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. This is written to the the, the congregation to have the proper respect for those who uh, have oversight over your souls. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, there's no question. There's just small sampling just to give you a flavor. But there's no question that biblically speaking, there is a responsibility for all believers to be submissive to the elders of their church. Now, as I tell people in our Uh, membership class all the time. You know, um, God has called each of you to be submissive to a body of elders. Now, it doesn't have to be this elder board, but it has to be some elder board or you're not living in the way that God has called you to. But with that said, conservative Bible-believing churches like ours have often struggled with three things, historically speaking. One is authoritarian leadership, Two is legalism, and three is judgmentalism. Some of you uh, that are members here of IBC, you've come specifically to this church because you have come from a church that has struggled with one, if not all, of those three things. Well, let me ask you the question this here this morning, and we're going to tackle the first of these here in this message, is why has there been such a struggle with authoritarian leadership? Well, I would answer it this way. It's because fundamentally there's been a misunderstanding of what authority is and a failure to recognize that there are qualifications and limits to how authority is to be exercised. So this morning I'd like to explore this topic and expose what the abuse of authority looks like, denounce it, and covenant with you, our members, to be held accountable to exercise our authority as elders of this this church as good shepherds. Well, where do we start? Well, we always start with the the definitions, right? Since we've been talking about authority throughout this month's family focus, uh, we don't need to reinvent the wheel about what authority is, but I do want to make sure that we're all working from the same definition, okay? So here's a definition. This is as good as as any out there. Authority is the right to exercise power to compel obedience from those under, uh, under authority. Now, that may sound kind of harsh at first blush, but how that authority is meant to be enforced by elders of a church in real life is not meant to be uh, by any stretch, stretch of the imagination harsh, as we'll see in the verses that we'll survey in today's message. Now, just so we're clear, 
Elders have no inherent authority, only delegated authority that comes from Christ. This delegated authority is particularly in the area of doctrine, theology, and conduct. Um, and all of that is rooted in the authority of God's word. Okay, The sole authority of God's word. Now, when it comes to this area, the elders of the church have the final say uh, in, in terms of authority. Now, with that said, anything good can be abused. Anything good can be abused, right? As, as we'll see in today's message, God has given the elders of the church delegated authority to lead his people, but there is a right way and there's a sinful way to go about it. You know, we call the abuse of God-given authority authoritarianism, okay? Using our authority in a way that displease and dishonor God. So if I use authoritarianism, I'm talking about this idea of abuse of God-given authority. All right. If you could just turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to, um, I want to use this passage uh, in, in verses 1 to 3 as the jumping off point for our discussion of the abuse of authority in the church. We're going to talk about the right exercise here in verses 1 to 2. Let's just read that together. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Peter is giving an exhortation here to the elders of the churches. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, you'll find out these churches are throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are places that are throughout Asia, northern Asia Minor, which would be modern Turkey, where we actually have missionaries uh, today. There, there are basically three words that are used synonymously in the New Testament to refer to the same office of elder. And all three of those are used in this passage. Elder, shepherd, which is the, the same word for pastor, and overseer. They each emphasize a different aspect of the church elder, but they are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. The elders are those who are biblically qualified and called to function as the leadership in the church. You guys all know 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 all have a list of qualifications for those who are called to be elders. They are men that are gifted by God to biblically instruct the congregation characterized by a godly life that substantiates their teaching. Now, biblically speaking, each local church should have a plurality of elders uh, who possess the godliness and the wisdom to make decisions and to provide its leadership. Now, it is to these specific men that comprise the leadership of the church that Peter directs or addresses these following words. Now, before we look at the negative, let's take a quick look at the positive part of the command there, shepherd 
the flock of God. This is an agrarian uh, metaphor, right? That is common in the Old Testament as well. I mean, we all know, you know, Psalm 23, you know, without even having to think, right? The Lord is my shepherd. It's an agrarian metaphor, right? And it depicts the people in the church as sheep and the elders of the church as shepherds. And here we see the appropriateness of the metaphor as it emphasizes the function of the real life shepherd of the sheep and the pastor of his flock, right? Now we all live in the city, you know, it's not like we, you know, know any real life shepherds, right? We're all, I mean, I, I, I certainly have never met one in real life, you know, um, but you have to learn a little bit about it, especially if you're going to go into a profession that says, you know, the your title is shepherd. You got to learn a little bit about it. So, you know, what, what are the main things that a shepherd does for his sheep? Well, it's pretty simple. Leading, feeding, and protecting. Feeding being the most important aspect of those three. This means that leading the flock in the direction they should go feeding them a healthy, well-balanced diet of God's word and constantly protecting them from the false teachers who are really wolves in sheep's clothing. But notice, however, that the flock doesn't belong to the shepherds themselves, but to God who has entrusted them with this solemn duty. And since God has committed the care of his people to the pastors and elders of the church, every man who is called to this office must carry out his responsibilities with the utmost seriousness. Another one of the elders function is mentioned right here in this verse. And that is the way it's uh, translated here is exercising oversight. This, this word focuses on the supervisory aspect of the elder that he is responsible for the spiritual oversight and care uh, of those under his charge. So a shepherd has responsibilities. And all of those is for the protection, the care, and love of the, of the sheep. Now there are qualifications to that. As we'll go through, as we'll see. And that is, um, the good shepherd doesn't go through the motions. Almost as quickly as Peter gives this exhortation for elders to shepherd and oversee their flock... He immediately qualifies that command with another command. Not under compulsion, but willingly. You know, the first qualification that Peter makes is very, very important. There are various reasons, uh, by the way, as to why pastors leave the ministry. That number, by the way, if you've ever seen, is pretty high. The, the people who went to seminary to become pastors who eventually leave the, the, you know, the ministry. It's something in, I don't remember the exact number, but it's something like 40 you know, percent or, or whatnot. And what are some of the common reasons as to why people that go into ministry eventually leave the ministry? Well, here are some common ones. It includes, uh, it's frustrating to be a pastor. It's thankless. It's burdensome. Um, here, here's a big one. You're poorly compensated and you're often criticized. I tell young people as they get ready to go into the ministry, if you can't handle criticism, this isn't the job for you because that's, that's part and parcel of what we sign up for. Uh, 
So as a result, they've had enough and they do something else uh, for a living. But, you know, and, and that's probably good for them if that's where they're at. But what about those who don't and they continue to pastor? What if, you know, he just wants to pick up his paycheck to support his family, but he doesn't really find joy in pastoring anymore? Those people are really out there. These same feelings can often result in leading by compulsion, which means he will simply go through the motions of pastoring much like any person does who hates his job. There will be a consequent lack of love or compassion for the people, a lack of passion in the messages, and a lack of power in the impact that person will have on his church and that church will consequently suffer. You know, anytime you are motivated by have to uh, instead of want to, your attitude and actions will be negatively affected and usually uh, quite noticeable to the other people around you. Now, although there may be some days where you feel like quitting, you know, as, a, as an elder of the church, maybe that's, that's normal. Uh, an elder shouldn't be an elder if that becomes the norm rather than the exception. Secondly, doesn't exploit his sheep. The second qualifying remark concerns the motives of the elders. He shouldn't be in it for shameful gain. A word that refers to an eagerness or fondness for deceitful gain. That is, gaining money or material possessions in a dishonest fashion, making illegitimate profit. Now, in this context, Peter is warning the elders of the churches not to have ulterior motives of greed in leading the church. You know, then, just like now, religion sells. And there will always be individuals out there who use it to make a buck. I mean, you can think of any number of illustrations, right? I mean, you just have to turn on your TV, see all any number of the prosperity gospel, you know, preachers that are telling you it's God's will for you to be healthy, wealthy, right, and prosperous, and then just say this prayer and God will give you untold riches. I mean, that's the kind of gospel people want to hear, right? Oh, God wants me to be rich. I want to be rich. Hallelujah, right? And, and you know, there are plenty of those guys on television for you to see. But it can be a lot more subtle uh, than, than that as well. You know, marketing yourself, right? Uh, profiting off the things that you produce, your books, you know, your sermons, and, and so forth. Here's where an abuse of authority can be quite the temptation. Because the finances of the church are usually assigned to who? To elders, it's easier for them to access the funds, to skim off the top of the offerings, to reimburse a business expense when it's really a personal expense, or as a leadership to make decisions that will benefit themselves financially. These are all temptations, right? I know of a situation where there was a seminary tied to the church. There are a lot of these, right? The senior pastor of the church 
was drawing a salary from both the church and the seminary, even though he never taught a single class at the seminary. Not to mention the fact that that seminary didn't have real students in the seminary, but were mostly made up of lay people from the church in order to give it an appearance that there were students in the seminary. But the fact that they had students allowed them to continue to receive donor funding in order to stay open. Now, most of the people in the congregation did not know that the pastor was drawing two salaries. But you know who did? The leaders of the church did. And one of them talked to me about it. Uh, How do you think he felt about it when he told me that? Right? There's a a scandal that, that goes with that kind of profiting. And because men are so prone to greed, power, and selfish interest, warnings like these are necessary. You know, ministry is unlike any other job occupation in that it's the only one that mandates that you cannot be it in the, you know, for the sole purpose to make money. Most of you, you go out for a job and you say, well, what's going to pay the most? How could I, you know, you know, maximize my profits? You know, um, hey, as pastors, we cannot be in it for the sole purpose uh, to make money. Because once you are, you are a hop, skip, and a jump away from abusing your authority. You know, having having said that, it doesn't mean that pastors don't deserve to be paid uh, paid fairly. After all, 1 Corinthians 9.14 states, Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from uh, the gospel or, or get their living from the gospel. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18 uh, says, let the elders who rule uh, well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who, le- who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the labor deserves his wages. You've got to sneak these in, right? To let everyone know that this is okay, right? But, uh, but so it's true that one of the fundamental responsibilities of the church is to financially support its pastors. You know, all the pastors say amen to that, right? That's just part of, our, you know, what, what it is too. But this isn't what Peter is talking about here. What he is referring to is this, being financially Supported by the church. That's honest gain. He's supposed to be adequately compensated for his labor. But it's when he's looking to use the ministry as the vehicle to get rich. To monetize the church for his own financial benefit. That's what this verse prohibits. The church is not meant to be operated as a for-profit business. That's why we have a nonprofit status. Well, who is the bad shepherd? Well, the bad shepherd is found in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter's third qualifying remark concerns the disposition of the church elder. The word translated domineering refers to a heavy-handed use of authority 
for personal aggrandizement that manifests itself in the desire to dominate, accompanied by an arrogant demand that you will comply with us. Simply put, it refers to an abuse of God-given authority, exercising one's authority for his own purpose. Or to use a term that we're all familiar with that we've introduced already, authoritarianism. You know, as we've already pointed out, there's a right way and a wrong way for pastors and elders to use the authority that God has given to them. The right way is to be a servant leader the way that Jesus was, right? We don't need to look any further from Philippians chapter 2 and the great kenosis passage in those first 11 verses about how Christ, though he was God come in the flesh, he didn't use it to his own advantage, but he emptied himself by becoming a slave, right? Jesus was never bossy. He was never overbearing. He was never unkind or self-seeking in the way that he related to others. In fact, Jesus never used his authority to his own advantage, but he used it for the benefit of all. The wrong way for pastors to use the authority that God has given to them is to control people and to always get their own way. Pushing your weight around to get what you want, intimidating others with your title and with your authority, making decisions that mostly benefit yourself rather than what is good for the whole church, etc. Authoritarianism is basically the sin of pontificating, poping, right? Being a, being a pope of your church rather than serving. You know, as Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, 42 to 43, right? You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your what? Your servant. By the way, did you know that there's a difference, um, and I say that because I didn't know this, that there's a difference between the shepherding style in the ancient Near East as opposed to here in North America? I want to give an, a, an extended quotation here by a, a man named Stephen Martin. He's a wild and crazy guy, Stephen Martin, uh, who does an excellent job explaining the difference between the two shepherding styles. Listen to this, what he says. He says, shepherds in ancient Palestine walked ahead of their sheep, leading them on and calling them by name to follow them to green pastures and cool waters. The sheep followed because they had come to know and trust the shepherd's faithful care and loving concern for their well-being. It was the shepherd who slept in the doorway of the sheepfold to guard the flock by night. It was the shepherd who fought the bear, the lion, and other predators. It was the shepherd who, protect, who protected the flock from the thief. It was the shepherd who stayed awake so that the sheep might sleep in peace. 
It was the shepherd who left the 99 safe to search for the one lost sheep. It was the shepherd who gently led the nursing ewes and their young, not cursing them for being weak, slow, and consumed with mundane matters. The Bible surely uses such images to depict a sacrificial and empathetic love for the sheep on the part of the shepherd. But times have changed, and shepherds in North America have grown accustomed to doing things differently. Sheep ranchers now employ barking dogs and herders in helicopters to drive the frightened, harassed, and bewildered sheep ahead of them. In modern sheep ranching, sheep are motivated by fear of the snarling bite of the rancher's seemingly omnipresent dogs and the incessant bellowing of the rancher's loudspeaker from the helicopters overhead. Sadly, in too many congregations today, sheep are not led. They are driven by a man more like a callous meatpacker than a loving shepherd. That's very helpful. Biblical shepherds are called to lead their sheep not drive their sheep. The sheep should follow their shepherds out of love, not out of fear. As Peter points out, shepherds need to be examples to the flock, walking in front of them and leading the way so that they will follow them lovingly, willingly. Elders are to be shepherds, not oppressors, right? Well, with that said, there are three categories of, a, of abusive authority. And I want to take a look at some of these main categories of abusing authority in the local church. Let's take a look at the first one there. Teaching as biblical what isn't in the Bible. You know, we ought to be preaching, or I should put it this way, we ought not to be preaching our opinions or our preferences as authoritative when there are no explicit scriptural justification for them. Okay? Now, I want to give you an example, okay? A common one, maybe one that you've come across before from Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. It says there, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, there to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. That's what it says in the scripture. But how many times uh, have you heard something that goes like this? Since Paul says that a wife is to be working at home, this means that a wife can never work outside the home. So if you have a wife that works outside the home in any form or, or fashion, then you are in violation of this passage. I've known personally of elders who have rebuked their members because their wife worked and they had kids. They had just bought a house and were dependent upon the two incomes in order uh, to pay their mortgage. And he believed that they and everyone else that he talked to should sell their homes in order to live on one income. 
Hey, that's, that's great if that's your conviction for your family, but that's quite another if that's my conviction as an elder and I'm forcing that upon you. It doesn't mean that there's not a conversation to be had about whether your wife should work or not in your particular situation, but it's quite another to mandate a decision. We've even known churches within our circles that have excluded from both their elder and deacon boards anyone who has a wife that works outside their home. Now, in order for this passage to be used in this way, it would, it would have to read, she is only to be a worker at home, which it does not. So this is an abuse of elder authority, reading something into scripture, which isn't there and making everyone comply with it. What this passage is saying is that we must recognize the biblical principle that her duties in the home are her main priority. She must be first and foremost above all else devoted to her home. So if a mom is going to work outside of her home, that work mustn't cause her to neglect her duties in the home or she's being unfaithful to the primary role that God has given to her because of faithfulness uh, to duties that God hasn't given to her. And that could include work. That can include a number of things, but not just work. I don't have the authority, none of the elders of the church do, to decide that for you and your family. And if I try to, I'm overstepping my authority as a pastor. When elders are guilty of representing a viewpoint doctrinal or otherwise, as biblically binding for all believers, and it does not have explicit scriptural backing, we are committing heinous sin, presumptuously pretending to represent God's viewpoint when he hasn't really spoken. We have no right as creatures to usurp the role of the creator. That is a clear abuse of the delegated authority that comes from God. So that's number one. Number two is heavy-handed authority. We abuse our authority as elders when we try to tell you who you can or cannot marry, which college you can or can't attend, which job you should take, where you should live, what TV shows or movies you can't watch, on and on, etc. For example, we had a young lady who attended our church a number of years ago, who we found out after the fact that she was actually disciplined by her previous church for attending grad school here in LA. We found out that she was told by her previous church not to go, and she decided you know, to go anyway. Um, and as a result, her sin of not heeding the council of the elders was announced at a member's assembly and that the members should confront her. This wasn't meant, by the way, to be Matthew 18 discipline, but a hybrid version where it would expire after the members confronted her and she moved to L.A. She didn't mention this, by the way, in her members interview. You know, one of her friends told us, you know, after the fact about it, um, uh, you know, we, we never knew all, all of that was going on. But all that to say is, that's an abuse of elder authority. We don't have the authority to tell you whether or not you can attend grad school or, or force you to stay at our church because we don't want you to go to grad school. 
Listen, our members should feel free at any time to ask our opinions about these and other like matters. I would invite you to. I think I would encourage you to do that. But at the end of the day, I hope you understand our opinion on those things is not authoritative. You know, I've had situations where, you know, girls have asked me to meet their boyfriends and to give an honest opinion about whether they should marry them or not. And I've always agreed to meet and give my honest opinion, but I always give this caveat. It's a very important caveat, right? My opinion is just that. It's an opinion. You need to make your own decision. Don't marry someone because I like him. I'm not going to live with him, right? You know, um, at the end of the day, you need to live with your own decision or you're going to live with regret or bitterness towards me for having, you know, making a decision that you're unhappy with. And I tell people that, right? You know, an eldership is abusing its authority when instead of understanding their authority as delegated from Christ, they usurp his authority and extend its reach for themselves uh, more than they should. Pastors sometimes view themselves, as I mentioned before, as popes or little Christs, telling the people what is or isn't acceptable on the minutiae of life's details. They believe they have papal infallibility, always right and never wrong. And this is why for certain churches and certain pastors, they can never admit when they've made a mistake, made a bad decision, given bad counsel, or sinned against one of its members. Look, it's, a, it's pathetic. It's sad when everyone in the church knows you're wrong, and yet you're too stubborn to admit it. Look, no one gets it right all the time, including us and our church. Um, and there is no shame in admitting when you do get it wrong. There's no shame in that. In fact, most of the people in the church will respect you more when you're able to admit that, and it serves as the right example to the rest of the congregation, that you're willing to own your sin, that you're not going to cover it up and make excuses for why you did what you did. You sinned, you repent, you move on. Doubling down on your righteousness when everyone else knows you aren't, that is never a good model for the church. And we certainly don't want to model that here. Our friend, uh, the wild and crazy guy, Stephen Martin, he made this important observation. He said this, because of results of authoritarianism, Jesus Christ is dishonored. The doctrines of the gospel come into discredit and many people are deeply hurt in the process. Let's talk about abusive, uh, number three, abusive church discipline. To be honest, I think I could fill a whole message just telling some of these stories, uh, but, but I'm not going to do that. But enough to say, elders abuse their authority when they use church discipline not as restorative, but instead as punitive. Now, when I talk about punitive church discipline, I mean pure punishment, right? Just pure punishment. When, when you think of church discipline as that, instead of Discipline for the purpose of restoring back to, the, to be useful in the church again as a member in good standing, you're already on the road to abuse, okay? Church discipline isn't intended to shame or um, embarrass those 
who have offended us. It's reserved for the most serious of cases when sin goes unrepentant in one of the church members' lives. You know, it's so serious, church discipline, that the fourth step results in excommunicating the member should he fail to listen to the pleas of the church and is subsequently treated as an unbeliever. You know, that is not anything to be taking lightly. But you know, the, the unfortunate sad reality is many pastors have been guilty of weaponizing church discipline against those who have crossed them, against those who have offended them, or dared to question them in any shape or form. We know of a church that disciplined two of their members out because he and his wife resigned their church membership and left before one year had expired because that was the policy of the church. In that church, you had to stay one calendar year after you turned in your member's resignation, but the couple didn't want to. And as a result, they were now under church discipline, and the pastor told his congregation that they were not to fellowship anymore with this couple. And uh, um, to make matters worse, if it can be worse, even told some of our people at IBC that they weren't to fellowship with them either. Nam and I, uh, we spoke with the pastor about this issue. And when I directly asked him if the, if the church had gone to the fourth step of discipline with this couple and considered them unbelievers, his reply was, well, we didn't do church Matthew 18 discipline, um, but we broke fellowship with them. Now, you'd be surprised how many of these hybrid versions of disciplines there are out there uh, in these churches. And, and I told the pastor, um, we weren't going to honor this hybrid version of church discipline and that I didn't want him telling our people not to fellowship with this couple anymore. Shaming believers because they don't follow your man-made rules is using church discipline as a weapon. There are other cases where the victim can become victimized. Here's one that's, that's been repeated over and over and over in the past 30 years or so. You know, as Bible-believing Christians, we value the institution of marriage, don't we? And uh, we take our marriage vows seriously because it's a covenant, right? It's not just a signed piece of paper. It's an actual covenant between ourselves, God, and others. Uh, and, uh, I'm sorry, and each other, not others. That makes it an open marriage. I think would do it that way, right? Yet, there are cases, there are cases when a husband commits adultery against his wife and the wife will then go to one of the elders of the church. One of the elders will meet with the husband and then report back to the wife that your husband says he's repentant. And your husband says he's repentant and now you need to go back to him. The wife will dispute this fact and say uh, she doesn't want to go back to him because he's not repentant for one. And secondly, she wants to exercise her right her God-given right in the scripture to divorce because he has broken his marital covenant. But because the elders are convinced that he is repentant, she is urged to go back in order to preserve the marriage. And after all, she's told that she's partly to blame for his infidelity as well, right? Well, didn't because of this, didn't you kind of push him towards that sin and all that? And in many of these cases, and there are a lot of them, if she doesn't go back, guess what? 
The elders will then put the wife under church discipline for not reconciling with her husband, even though she has biblical grounds to divorce him. So the victim now becomes victimized. And this is what happens when a church tries to be more biblical than the Bible. Here's a similar story. A wife is being abused by her husband, either verbally, spiritually, physically, or in many cases, all of the above. The instruction that many pastors were given in the name of biblical counseling, including your pastors, went something like this. One, you don't call the police unless you believe this wife's life is in danger. Meaning, you know, like there's a gun pointed or you think she's going to literally die on the spot. Because the church shouldn't allow unbelievers to manage the case. Instead, we should urge the wife to stay in the home and submit to her abuser and suffer like Christ. It was compared to a missionary on the mission field and suffering persecution um, for Christ. Where we were told, we don't ask the missionaries to come home, right? We tell them, stay on the mission field and suffer for Christ. By the way, both of those examples are terrible. We wouldn't do that with our missionaries. If they were in danger, we'd bring them back, right? How loving is it to tell a wife whose very life is in danger to stay there, suffer, and trust Christ? You know, if there were ever an abuse of elder authority, this is definitely it. What kind of elder feels like that's shepherding his sheep in a way that honors Christ? Listen, we're going to value the life and safety of the wife over the integrity of her marriage. If she's being abused by her husband, we will help her to get to a safe place and protect her. We're not going to wait for her to get beaten to a pulp and then do something about it, right? Um, we're going to act before that happens. Now, this isn't a message about abuse. Actually, next week's message is going to deal with some of these abuses. I get all the positive stuff in the, in the church, so just so you know. But just so there's no misunderstanding about this, since I brought it up, let me briefly mention IBC's policy on, uh, on abuse. This is what we, we do here in this church. We've been asked about this in light of some of the, the scandals that are going on. Here's some of the things we would do. Ask the wife if she's willing to leave the home uh, we would never pull someone out of the home against their will. They're grown-ups. We can't do that. They have to comply. But if, if she's willing to leave the home and needs the church's help to relocate it to a safe place, uh, then we will do that. Number two, we call the police. We want to go on record with the authorities documenting the abuse. The church is not going to harbor wife or child abusers of any kind, Right? That's not our place. Number three, in addition to the legal accountability, we will place the husband under church discipline and he will be required to enter into regular counseling with one of the elders. Number four, we will not counsel reuniting the couple unless two things happen. Both the wife and the elders are absolutely convinced she is safe to return. Obviously, she's a grown-up. If she wants to go back against our wishes, that's hers, but her prerogative to do so. But that's how we kind of handle uh, these cases. Let me give a related example that is true of counseling cases. 
Churches will encourage its members to come forward for counseling, just like we do. We're, we're trying to be a church that has a biblical counseling culture, and we want you to come forward there, we, you know, to, to be counseled, and we want you to be counseling each other informally on a daily basis. But in many cases, they'll encourage their members to come forward for counseling when they're having issues or struggling with sin in their lives. And again, that's a good thing. But here's where the problem comes in. As they meet for counseling... A struggle with a particular sin or sins is revealed. Take pornography, uh, for instance. And the elders urge the counselee to repent. Good. Still no problem. But here's where it becomes problematic. If the member struggling with pornography repents, but relapses back into that sin more than once, he's accused of being unrepentant and then put under church discipline. He's told that if he's really repentant, he won't commit that sin anymore. Really? You know, if that's true, you will never commit the same sin twice ever in your life. If I truly repent of sinful anger, does that mean I will never be sinfully angry, angry ever again or I was never truly repentant? Try finding that in the Bible. At some point, I'm going to be perfect, right? I'll commit every sin under the sun, and I'll never repent, and I'll never commit it again. Listen, sin is very real, and it's very powerful, and sometimes it takes time to overcome its power. It's overly simplistic to think that all you need to do is truly repent, and on that day, all your desires for that sin will just magically disappear overnight, instantaneously, because you prayed for repentance. In many cases, it doesn't. And that's where the hard work of sanctification comes in. Look, if you've ever come in thinking you're going to meet with one of us for biblical counseling, and after the first time you sit down, instantly your problems are all cured. My sin is done with, and I can go back into the world after you know, this magic meeting that we have with you. That's not real life. That's not what the Bible paints of sanctification. Sanctification is hard work to overcome your sin and to walk in holiness. Sin is powerful and it complicates everything. Submitting your desires and weaknesses to the Spirit and His Word for help and change takes time. Okay, there's no quick fix to it. And if you think like that, you need to change the way you think about it. Just to be clear, the problem isn't with our spiritual resources. The problem is with our weak selves and prolonged bad habits, which has resulted in our failure to appropriate our divine resources. We shouldn't discipline such people who need our help. We come alongside of them to point them back to Christ and then we help bear their burdens. But if you're attending a church where you see members coming forward for counseling that just end up getting disciplined out of the church, are you going to go to your elders if you're struggling with sin? Right. No, you'll probably just keep it to yourself and deal, it, deal with it on your own as best you can. You know what one of the main contributing causes is to why liberal-leaning churches don't practice church discipline? Because they've seen it done abusively in conservative churches and have basically said, if that's what it's like to be biblical, no thanks. By the way, do you know how you usually can tell if someone has been a victim 
of an abusive church situation, they have a tendency to become extremely bitter. Not just angry, extremely bitter. And they are more than willing to tell everyone who will listen. They'll post to social media about it. You know, we've seen injured members of former churches open up a website about the, the problems that they've had. They, they leave Yelp reviews. It's supposed to be for food, isn't it? But uh, churches are on. Someone left one for ours even, you know, uh, as well. And they, we've even seen injured members preach sermons about their negative experiences about their former church for a Sunday morning service. Listen, I think that's one of the worst things that a believer can do. Airing the church's dirty laundry for everyone to see, right? But when victims feel such a deep injustice has taken place, they feel justified to get the word out. And that's the unfortunate negative effect that sin has upon its victims. And it leads to more sin. Sin begets more sin. All right. Putting off and putting on. Titus uh, chapter 1 verses 7 to 8 says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. First of all, the characteristics of an authoritarian man should be caught right from the start and never overlooked. If he is arrogant or quick-tempered, regardless of how skilled or talented he is, he shouldn't be an elder. Arrogance means you're stubborn, you're self-willed, and often means that you can't or won't be taught because you already know everything. Quick-tempered means just that. You don't have patience for others, that you have a short fuse, especially for those who disagree with you. And the combination of these two character flaws are two of the main components for authoritarianism. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do their will. I want you to notice something here. That the elders aren't supposed to be throwing their weight around as they exercise their authority. Even as they fight against false teachers. You know the word translated quarrelsome there refers to fighting with words. Which ironically I see all over Twitter and the internet by prominent church leaders fighting with each other over words. Think about it. If it's not only required for kindness to be exercised towards enemies of the gospel, what does that imply towards all of the sheep? Whether it's a wolf or a sheep, elders must treat them all the same. And even when correcting those who are hostile, there ought to be gentleness displayed. Authoritarianism and the attitudes that go with it are forbidden by scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. Now, this is important because this is not addressed to the elders specifically, but to everyone in the church. Brothers, brothers and sisters. So it obviously includes everyone in this congregation. 
There are all kinds of people in the church that have all kinds of issues. The idle refers to the lazy, the loafing, those who are neglecting their daily duties. There are the faint-hearted, those who are discouraged, they're insecure, and who at the present moment are overwhelmed by the troubles of this life. And then there are the weak. There are those who are weak in the faith and are more susceptible to falling into sin and are prone to struggle in their trusting of God. You know, the response in each case of shepherding such people is different. But one thing all responses should have in common is this. Being patient is the key. And it's not indicative of an authoritarian attitude. So whether you admonish, right, or warn believers about their neglect of their daily duties, whether you encourage or use comforting words towards those who are discouraged, or whether you help or uphold another believer, supporting them when they're spiritually weak, the answer is the same. Be patient, be slow to anger, and endure with the faults of others without becoming quickly irritated. Dealing with difficult people can take a great amount of patience because they don't always respond as quickly as we would like. And we're reminded here that elders shouldn't overreact, but instead do the hard work that is shepherding. Listen, on behalf of the elders at IBC, we don't claim to always get it right or that we have never fallen short of the biblical standard. That would be a lie to say that. What I can say is that we affirm the biblical standard. We strive to live according to that standard and we will do our best to keep each other accountable as elders to live according to that standard. God has given us authority, not so that we can lord it over you, okay? He has given it to us so that we might serve as your shepherds to love, to feed, and to protect you. And as I end this morning, pray that we will be the kind of shepherds that please the good shepherd, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to open the word this morning. And as we think about authoritarianism and the sin that goes with that, help us to be men of God who will flee from those kinds of sins and instead live in the way that will please the Lord Jesus, that will emulate him uh, to our people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.